everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We've got a cool, cool guest on today. We have Mark Mills, who is a Manhattan Institute fellow. Now, are you on the faculty at Northwestern or are you a researcher associated with them? I, I'm a faculty fellow, faculty fellow, which, which sounds very, very lofty. Uh, it means I, I don't have any obligations and... Uh, <laughs> I provide uh, episodic advice. I get to play with very smart people. Maybe a lecture once a year. It's a uh, it's a it's a great university that I I get to have an affiliation with, which is it's kind of like well, any kind of fellowship, if you like. I like so, that. I like that. Yeah. That's a, a long way of saying hand. I don't teach. It's a long way of saying I don't teach there, and I'm not a professor. <laughs> exactly. Kind of my like my association with digital wildcatters. What do you do? It's, well, I have a fellowship. We'll say that. And you're also yeah. a a partner at Montrose Lane, uh, yep. which I'm honored to be on the advisory board of. So, yeah, it was a, it, a lot of fun. It's uh, as we'll talk about it. Sort of epitomizes the center of my thesis, which is the convergence of the world of bits and atoms. Exactly. So, Mark. Uh, we can kind of cut to the chase on this. It's been a really, really crappy 18 months. We've had the pandemic. <laughs> we've had quarantine. We've had all this mess. So my audience has come to me and they said, Chuck, we need a ray of hope. We need some optimism. <laughs> we need some light. And I said, great, guys. I'll go bring a physicist on to the uh, to the podcast. But as I say that with love and joking, You've written a new book. It's called The Crowd Revolution. It uh, New technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. And so it's a really good book. I've read it. It is very optimistic. So, Mark, what's the story on this? What's The Cloud Revolution and why is it so great? Of course, everybody should know that advanced copies go out and the, the writer never expects people to read them. So you get chops for it. Uh, reading an advanced copy, which I appreciate. I have notes. I've, I've taken <laughs> notes here. And just to show that I paid attention to the book for the first time ever, I took notes on my notes on my iPhone as well. <laughs> well, that's also perfectly thematic for my book of the merge of the world of bits and atoms because books are still strong. Paper still exists. We use more paper in the world today than we did 50 years ago. And we have more smartphones and computers in the world that we did 50 years ago. It's sort of the nature of what my book's about. But, you know, the funny, the funny thing about writing, setting aside, you know, writing is, if, if you take it seriously, it's a lot of work, which is, this is fine. Lots of things are a lot of work. Uh, and, it get, and it gets labeled as an optimistic book, and it is. And the title's optimistic. You know, I, revolutions are not always optimistic. So some revolutions, like the Bolshevik right. Revolution, wasn't so good for the Russian people. So that's why the subtitle, you know, unleashing uh, the, the next economic boom and the roaring 2020s. I prefer to uh, view my uh, analysis of the state of play as realism, that the fact that people label optimism tells you a lot about how rampant pessimism is 
in the world today. So, but I, I get it. I mean, there's a lot wrong in the world. There's a lot of tumult, let's just say. You call it, to call it a tempestuous time that we live in would be an understatement given the last 18 months. For a lot of people, it's been a living hell. I mean, I'm not, I'm not diminishing the carnage uh, uh, for humanity. It's been a political hell for a lot of people. When you think about what a lot of governments have done, it's not, not so good. Some good things, uh, a, a, a lot of dumb things. And, you know, I begin my book talking about the 1920s deliberately because I think technologically there's a lot of an, an analogs of what's going on now and will go on for the next century. But what's interesting about the 1920s are the political and social and cultural analogs. And I talk about them only in a page, as you know. I've only spent maybe, yeah, maybe a page. But anybody that spends five minutes with the magic Google machine looking at looking up things that were going on in 1920 and 21 will be amazed if you don't if you know most people don't remember their history that well I, I get it doesn't take much to refresh it but 1920 was the third wave of the 1918 flu pandemic it, it lasted almost three years and and the total uh, carnage in America in terms of per capita deaths was almost 400 percent four times more than we experienced. It's a pretty, pretty ugly, pretty ugly experience for America. It was at a time of uh, civil unrest, race riots all over the country, thousands, thousands of troops called up. Charleston, South Carolina put under martial law for race riots. That's when the Tulsa bombings happened, which there's a new book out right. on that, when the U.S. Army Air Force bombed a black neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for goodness sake. I mean, talk about toxic uh, race relations. Uh, the, the anarchists were in ascent then, bombings in cities all over the country. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover warned that in May Day 20, 1920, there would be an insurrection, an uprising, kind of sounds familiar. There wasn't one in, in 1920. The election of 1920 was extremely contentious. Uh, Harding won on a platform of return to normalcy. Women got to vote that time for the first time in history, which was contentious, by the way, at that time. In hindsight, you know it shouldn't be contentious, but it it was it was then. We had prohibition, for goodness sake, a constitutional amendment to make to criminalize something human beings have been consuming since before recorded history, <laughs> and we we criminalized it. So not for not for one year. It took uh, I think thirteen years before the amendment was revoked until the early nineteen thirties. So uh, there's a lot. I mean the the uh, eugenics movement was. Uh, in full swing at that time, which was an odious, disgusting, racialized theory of uh, humanity that was supported, embraced, and funded by the intelligentsia, by universities, and the tech titans of the day. So what a, and people worried about income inequality. The Gold Coast had billionaires there, not just a few people in real real terms equivalent to Bezos and Gates and, uh, and Elon Musk, but dozens and dozens of people of that kind of wealth class uh so people worried about income inequality then so we and but the point yeah, of that and we just sort of we just gotten done with world war one as well and that it, wasn't a pleasant that, time so yeah that's pretty gross so and people worried about communism overrunning america uh because of the bolshevik bolshevik revolution of 1917. so it was a pretty ugly time uh in many respects to be in america what happened next is we had the roaring 20s of incredible uh, uh, blossoming of jazz, and music, and dancing, and literature, and 
incredible economic growth, the beginning of the longest, biggest boom of an economy in all of human history. From 1920 to 2000, per capita wealth in America went up 700% in real terms. Average lifespan went up 30 years. How did that happen? It didn't happen because of the politicians or because of economists. It happened because of what engineers invented, and what they created. It was a confluence of sort of incredible series of revolutions all related in machines, materials, and communications. Radio, telephone, cars, airplanes, steel, polymers, pharmaceuticals, uh, all these mass, mass production all happened contemporaneously. It's that feature that my book saw, that contemporaneous convergence of revolutions in 1920 propelled the 20th century. I contend, and as you know, I map out in my book, that the, exactly the same character of contemporaneous revolution is happening in exactly the same uh, domains of machines and materials and our information system. And of course, in the middle of it now, for the first time, we have something really different. The thing, you know, you said people talk about, is this time different? Well, this time is always different in some ways, right? You have to sort of discern what's different and what's not. But what is different this time is we have an infrastructure, the cloud, that is different in, in character and power and scale. It's quite unlike anything in human history, and it amplifies all the three revolutions. So it's, I think we live at a, on the cusp of a, potentially, uh, a potential boom that equals or exceeds what started in 1920. So, Mark, let me ask a question about that, because as I was reading your book, you even point out on the uh, cover that it's a lot of people just think one event happens and boom, that leads to everything. And you talk right. about the confluence of these three uh, information, machines, materials coming together. You use the term actually serendipity a lot when yeah. you when you kind of talk about the the convergence of those three did that come together in your mind because i i think you're using that really as a predictive framework or a predictive mm -hmm. modeling tool <laughs> however we want to describe it did that come together in researching this book is this your lifelong theory that you've based things on how, how did you come up with with that kind of framework yes <laughs> Is uh, actually, you know, you, 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 it, it's a good way to frame it, uh, Chuck, that it's not so much a lifelong theory, but it's a lifelong uh, learning that I began my career. Uh, you know, I was a theoretical, trained as a, in theoretical physics, but I was practical in, in a sense. Uh, I, I raced uh, motorcycles when I was young and immortal. I was a mechanic, a machinist. Uh, I, my first job was in a semiconductor fab, building things, and I worked a missile guidance. I actually made stuff with my own hands, got patents. And I've always been fascinated how things work. And as I learned more, got more fascinated with how governments work, how economies work, how companies work, which is why I'm involved in, in you know, a venture business as well. So how things work is, is interesting. And, and the more you learn and the more you study and experience, you, one develops a theory, right? You begin to see patterns. You know, human beings, and as I, as you know, I write in my book, are are pattern recognizers. It's wired into us. Right? The you know, anthropologists would say that's because, well, you know, the rustling of leaves and heavy breathing of a tiger in the jungle. You begin to figure out that pattern is not is not a good sign. <laughs> or cloud patterns when you're you're a farmer in 1810. You, you look at we're pattern recognizers, but this is wired into us, and we can ignore ignore it. And sometimes patterns can deceive you. So I, I get that. 
So the lifelong exploration that I've been interested in has really been about technology and how it influences the other things, but how we get the new technologies. So there's two, there's, there's sort of, we could divide it into three buckets. And my book only talks about one of them. How do we get new technologies? How much is serendipity a play? How much is government a role? What, how, how, does, how does innovation happen? Really important stuff. I have theories on that. I may write a book on that. <laughs> but it's, and I write a little bit about that. The last two chapters are about innovation and science because I think the cloud is a, a, a great accelerator for new innovation. It's going to help serendipity. But the second part is, uh, okay, uh, what happened? You know, what got innovated? Not how did it happen? Let's just look at what actually happened and then ask what the implications are, which is what my, my book's about. And the third bucket is what kind of political system do we need to ensure the first two can happen? Innovation can happen. We can unleash serendipity and planning. We have to plan and get the good outcomes, not just the bad from new technologies. So you they're all relevant, uh, but you, one can write a whole book about governance and, and, and pl you know planning, whether it's a corporate planning or or, or the uh, our federal government or state governments. And you can write books about people have how innovation happens. I will say to your point that what 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 you one learns is that there's a set of predicates you need to have innovation happen. You have to have smart people, be motivated, have the freedom to do what they want to do, get funded. All those things matter, but serendipity is far more common than, than most planners would like and realize. Serendipity doesn't just mean that somebody's <laughs> drinking vodka in their backyard or shooting squirrels and they have an epiphany. Serendipity happens because there's smart people trying to do things, trying to discover things, trying to invent things, but when and where the aha moment happens, when and where the, the serendipitous discovery happens, it's very difficult to predict. It's, predict. it's predictable in that it can happen and you can predict the framework of which will happen, but who will do it and when they'll do it is really annoying. Exxon researcher in 1978 invented the lithium battery. Who knew, right? I mean, people today don't even know that. So Elon Musk, uh, quite a few years later, revolutionized the expensive automobile, the expensive part of the automobile industry. But you know, he didn't. He didn't invent the lithium battery. He made. A, he makes a really good battery, uh, probably better than anybody else's car battery, arguably. A really good engineers. But how did the lithium battery come to be? Well, the, the chemist doing the research wasn't. It, it wasn't trying to make a better beer. That's <laughs> not that kind of serendipity. He wasn't a distiller. He was trying to figure out how chemicals work to release energy. He was trying to do that. Right. That's what his job was. And serendipitously, that smart guy got a Nobel Prize with two others who, you know, who helped to realize the practical side. That's a long answer to, I think, it is a lifelong goal to figure out how those things work. But I, was, I thought I'd write a book about the consequence of recent inventions uh, and what they are rather than how they happened, because you don't have to explain how they happened to say they did happen, right? I mean, it, that's... Yeah. No, because it's it's interesting in that you gave the framework based on history and you could look at that somewhat cynically and say, well, yeah, in hindsight, you're able you're able to put together this. But you actually use that framework going forward 
yes. to make your predictions on the Roaring Twenties. And so what I thought we might do is kind of just drill down into uh, each one of those buckets so you can tell us what's going on in the, in the buckets and why they're important. And maybe we'll start with information, infrastructure. I'm calling that the S's, superhighway, sensors, silicon. What What's going on there that's got you excited that that's going to lead to our roaring 20s? So, you know, we've always cared about information, and both in terms of how we collect information or data about our world, how we record it, how we store it, how we share it, and how we analyze it. I mean, that's been going on. As, as I write in my book, predating the time of the Library of Alexandria, but it's the Library of Alexandria was the iconic first, uh, we'll call it cloud in its, of its day. It was the first real library containing probably millions of volumes where the Dewey Decimal System, although it wasn't called Dewey Decimal, <laughs> that was invented specifically, but the catalog system for uh, finding uh, information was invented by, by the Greeks. Uh, if you sort of trace information over history, you find that there are uh, changes in character, how easy it is because of technology to acquire and store and share information. Obviously, acquiring it by, without any instruments, using your eyes, look at nature, look at how humans behave, recording in a papyrus and rolling it up, then having to go to the library to learn about it and think about it and analyze it, and then share it by traveling on a horse or a camel to tell somebody pretty inefficient. So you can sort of trace the history of information through those three, I will call them magisteria, right? That's what we've been doing from the po to the Pony Express, to the telegraph, the telephone, to, you know, to, to the printing press for recording, uh, then to radio, television, the internet. My core thesis is this, that the three key metrics of how easy it is to get information are sensors, that are wired and wireless, especially wireless sensors that can disappear into the fabric of our life, the fabric of nature, the fabric of machines. The ability to transmit information, which is, we call it the internet, but it's more than that. It's, it's microscopic radios, right? And fiber and glass and satellites, but that constellation. And our ability to process it in computers, those three things, a constellation of things, each by themselves is orders of magnitude better, more powerful and faster than anything in history. And altogether, they form what we would call the cloud, which is more than the sum of its parts. It's an astonishing shift. The cloud is a bigger transformation in information over the internet than the internet was the transformation over telephony. And going from telephones to the internet was a big deal. I contend going from the internet to the cloud is a bigger deal. And I try to prove that, as you know, with data, on number of nodes, speed, costs in, in the book. Yeah, I mean, just your discussion on having to come up with different names for the amount of information we have. Uh, I, was, I mean, yeah, no, who, who would have ever thought? You know, it, it's, it's crazy because uh, words matter because words are the way we, we, we communicate, express things and, you know, form, frame ideas. It's how we philosophize, how we relate. So that's why I was so focused and fascinated by just the numbering nomenclature. And people don't, the numbers are astonishing. You know, this uh, uh, computer science professor, J.C. Licklider from MIT back in the 60s, was probably the first guy to really think about how to express our information 
quantity in numbers other than pages or quantities of books. And because he was a computer scientist, you know, back in in the 1940s, uh, Van Ever Bush, Van Ever Bush was the science advisor to President Roosevelt. He was the one who created, the, you'd arguably created the modern research state that we have today in National Science Foundation. He wrote that the quantity of information in journals and books, talk about technical stuff, uh, was overwhelming in that we were generating a quantity of information th that required us to essentially operate in the modern era like we're fighting a war using sailing ships. So the war of words, trying to analyze data, was that the volume was at a level that we're still using antiquated technology. He imagined computers would do better because he was one of the early inventors of parts of the computers. And that's, of course, what happened. And then we have to start counting these in bytes. That's what we do. Everybody's familiar with bytes. Everybody talks about how many gigabytes they have of this, gigabytes of that. Throwing around gigas like they're just, you know, I don't know, tiddlywinks instead of manhole covers. A, a gig is a big number. It's a billion or something. And it used to be that gigas were, so then we had to make up new words, you know, zettabytes, yottabytes. But I love the fact that the, there's, a, there's an argument going on between how to, how to come up with bigger numbers than zettabytes, which is how we sort of measure the internet today, zettabytes of data. You know, it's a number that's unimaginably big. I mean, as, as three zettas of data is sort of what the monthly traffic is, zettabytes of data on the internet and the cloud. If I gave, if I stacked up th three zettabytes of dollar bills, just to visualize how big the zeta number is, the dollar bill stack would go from us to the sun and back, right? Yeah. Millions of times. I mean, th these, are, these are astonishing big numbers. Uh, and do they have consequence other than being kind of fun big numbers? Yeah. It's it's data. It's information. It's 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 the you know the expression data is a new oil. Well, uh, it's actually not sort of it's it's sort of a silly expression in some sense because data uses energy and oil is a source of energy. But it but it in the philosophical sense that what do we mine? What are we going to go refine to get more value in our society? We're going to go refine and mine this incredible data trove. Yeah, no, there are two interesting kind of stats when it talks about amount of information. The word on the street is that oil and gas companies use 1% of the information they actually gather out in their operations. And whether it's right. 1%, 2 3%, whatever it is, it's stunning the amount of information that's not being used. And I used to have a partner uh, back when I was at Kane Anderson, Reservoir Engineer, that always said there's no such thing as an oil field mystery. We just may not have the the sensors to be able to gather the data so that we can prove whatever the scientific truism is with that. And what's wild is we've got all of this data. And so will we be able to find more and more of those truisms? And I think the answer to that's obviously yes. Yeah, I think I think there's there's a no question that we can believe that the answer is yes. What we don't know is how much horsepower we need of a computing kind to get the, you know to tease the answers out, and we also don't know how much more data we need. So your your colleague's comp is correct. The data are there, so we have to we 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 already only use this is true not just in the oil and gas industry. It's true in every industrial sector. It's particularly true in the biological human health sector. 
we have far more data than we use to make integer. We just the data are there, but we 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 can't collect them in an organized, clean way, if you like. We can't synthesize them properly yet. Part of that is because we don't have the tools yet. It's as amazing as the cloud is. We don't yet have fully deployed tools that make it really easy to collect data and clean it up so it can be used, which is not much different than any resource. You know, we have lots of molybdenum in the Earth's crust. It's really hard to get at a lot of it. So it's that kind of thing. And then the, the magnitude of the computing power we need to really do the kinds of things, whether it's in an oil and gas well, whether it's to mine silver, uh, to make solar cells, whether it's to manage supply chains that are complex and global, massive amounts of data. We probably need computing power at least an order of magnitude better than we have today. But I don't. it's no mystery if I say to you or any, it, nobody would be surprised if, if you say, okay, well, wait a few years, we'll have that. Right, it's that's what's happening. Right. My real point in the book on the information part is that the speed at which computing is getting better, we'll call it the artificial intelligence feature of computing, but the speed of computing power, in terms of how much compute horsepower you can get per dollar, that's actually getting better at a rate faster than the vaunted Moore's law. It's actually accelerated in the cloud era because the cloud, like, is a utility, increases. The, both the power while simultaneously decreasing the cost at a rate that's never happened, faster than the internet did it. So whatever expectation we had that computing power would get better fast based on our experience of the internet for three decades, that is now going to be amplified, which is totally impossible to do in the physical world. Now you can't amplify rates of change because you hit limits, but in the information world, we don't even know where the limits are. Well, and it's it's crazy. This stat blew me away, and I'll probably misquote it, so correct me. <laughs> but you said that a 10 by 10 spot in a data center today contains more computing power than the whole planet had in 1980. And we had sent yeah. men to the moon. I mean, it's crazy. I know. I, I mean, the, the, the compute horsepower of what we do today is off the charts better and as good as it is and and let's just we'll talk about the good and bad of what we do with this computing power because like all technologies not everybody that builds computing systems do it for things that others would consider useful or moral or whatever but the progress in that area has been sort of independent from and different than the progress things like going to the moon We've gotten better going to the moon. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have shown that they might have a shot at getting, they didn't get there yet. So nobody else has gotten back there yet. It's really right. hard. That's because you're dealing with, well, just to be simplistic, atoms and not bits, right? You can't, right. If, if you could take a human being and do what they did in Star Trek and digitalize, take the white space out, teleport to the moon, boom, bada boom, you're in the moon. Thing is, when you do that to human beings there, it's a one way. Yeah, I mean, you can take them apart, but you can't put <laughs> them that's just. I, I don't want to go first. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> no. I don't want to be the guinea pig on that one. You know, it's really funny. So Captain Kirk, William Shatner, got to go up into yeah. uh, space with uh, Bezos. And as it turns out, kind of long story. Uh, I'll tell you at some point next time we grab a drink. I'm really good friends with Lee Majors. He lives in Houston. We've met. Oh, no kidding. We go eat dinner. Yeah, the six so, million dollar uh, man, my man. Exactly. And he's sitting there going, I like William Shatner. He's a good guy. We're friends, but 
how does the six million dollar man not get to go to space first? I, so. yeah, come on. Well, it, you know, how old is Lee Majors now? He's got to be 80? 80, 83, I think. And he's still healthy, I hope, God, God willing. In, in great shape. Yeah. So he should be the first man to wear uh, or do something with exoskeletons because that would be perfect, right? That There you go. I like that. We'll work, so we'll we gotta, work on that one. You know, one of the, as you know, I write a lot about exoskeletons in my book. And, and one of the most interesting new features of technology that's emerging that will emerge far faster than space tourism, because that's just going to stay really hard because it's, you got to take really big rockets that are kind of dangerous, gotten better, that use hydrocarbons, a lot of them, <laughs> to right. fight gravity. And we're stuck with gravity in the universe we live in. So, I mean, I love space travel. I grew up uh, as a space nut. I watched the first episode of Star Trek. I wanted to be, who didn't want to be an astronaut? If you, I mean, come on, when you were yeah. the generation that we're from. But anyway, Lee Majors, this, this, we got to hook him up really- with some exoskeletons. <laughs> well, we were. This was this was uh, interesting. We went and saw Coldplay together, me and and Lee Majors. And I said, I want to go uh, meet Chris Martin. And Lee goes, Okay. So we're backstage meeting Chris Martin. Uh, on you know one side note, I'm like, Hey Lee, how'd you get us back here? And I go, Well, I called Blythe Danner, and that's his. That's her son-in-law. You know. And I'm <laughs> like, Oh, okay. Well, that that makes perfect sense. But it was uh, it was cool because now Senator Mark Kelly, the astronaut from yep. Houston, uh, was backstage and he actually told Lee, he said, the whole reason I wanted to be an astronaut was watching the six million dollar man. Oh, nice. As a kid. Yeah. It's nice. So. Well, it's a lot, there's a lot of that history uh, in technology. It's not it happens more than you think. The, the stories inspire people. Uh, you know, the development of the, um, the uh, uh, smartphone, the, the first the first cell, first cell phones, not smartphones, the first wireless telephone, the inventor of that at Motorola was inspired by Dick Tracy comics and his, his, uh, his, his watch. Before it became a video watch, it was a, it was a radio, a wireless radio on his wrist. The, the uh, cartoonist imagined the TV part of it later, but it began before World War II as a radio. And remember, World War II, the smallest radio was a big, heavy, 80-pound backpack, right? That was the smallest radio for the military the GIs carried around. And, and this predates that, and he imagined a wrist radio. That was directly what influenced the engineer at Motorola who said, you know what, I, I can do that. And of course, his radio, everybody's seen the, you know, the original brick rate, cell phones that are made famous by, by, by the movie with Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Right. Exactly. So one other thing while we're on information infrastructure, before we jump into the other buckets, I'm not sure I followed this directly. So very ignorant question coming, but in effect, computer chips changed from Boolean logic, or they didn't change from, there was an additional type of chip created that is really driving us towards artificial intelligence. Walk, Walk me through that. Because sure. I had no appreciation that that was happening. Yeah, I think the the, the thing that's uh, fascinating is this uh, change. This a change to a new, not replacement, but additional class of architecture for what what the microprocessor, the computer chip does. So everybody's heard the word binary logic. The chips use zeros and ones to be coded to do things. So in effect, that's they do do things by what we'll call brute horsepower, right? Just you just make them faster and faster, and you do things linearly. 
And there's nothing wrong with linear logic. You just do lots of things in parallel if you want to speed things up. But analyzing images is kind of hard. If you think of, just think about the difference between analyzing a spreadsheet, which is linear numbers, and you want to look for whether the bottom entries line up, you could just do a second spreadsheet, compare them. It's very linear. And you can imagine making computers do that. It's what they do. But if I have a picture, you and I looking at each other, I want the computer to recognize you, face recognition. How, how do you do that? It's, it's, it's an image picture problem. A lot of things in life are more like images, more like pictures. Theories are more like images and pictures, right? But they're not unrelated. They're related phenomenologies. So if you want to generate an image, forget about an, first, if you want to analyze an image, you'd have to first generate an image. I mean, the technology to analyze it is, is the inverse of making it, so to speak. So if you want to make an image or things equivalent to images, or literally make images, you have to come up with computers that can do that if you want to make, say, a video game, right? Because I got to make images. Well, right. uh, the first computer games like Pong were literally like digital images, right? If you could remember, everybody knows they look like. It's like a little matrix of things go literally in Pong. linear. Yeah, ping. Pong. But you're in a little matrix. Things go back and forth in a simple linear grid. To make video games look real, I have to generate real looking images. This is the story of NVIDIA and uh, the GPU, the, the graphics processing unit, making computer chips, architecture and software, it's embedded firmware, says that it's designed primarily to generate an image. It's not that you can't do it with the brute force, is that it's a lot harder, it takes a lot more hardware, it takes a lot longer. So you accelerate the process by making it a dedicated to just make images. Turns out that's exactly what you need to do to analyze images, who's, who's surprised? Or to analyze patterns, because images are basically patterns. It, so I've just used the words for artificial intelligence or machine learning. So the theory of machine learning and artificial intelligence, which is essentially a pioneer by a lot of pioneers. Hinton, professor of mathematics at the uh, University of Toronto is generally credited as the guy who really put the idea together, the, the way that Turing did for linear logic. The theory couldn't be executed on the computers because you just couldn't build enough computers fast enough. GPUs come along, boom, they have the horsepower to do it because they're just doing it differently. So modern supercomputers, and that's true of things that are in the cloud, and it's also true of your, 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 your smartphone, have both kinds of chips, both kinds of logic. They do both. So you merge the two kind of the way human beings operate. I mean, think about it. We do some things by intuition. We do some things by sort of rote learning, right? And, and But they aren't unrelated phenomena. You do both. You When you learn to do a skill that requires sort of rote linear learning, you also are simultaneously doing things that are sort of gestalt-like. So anyway, those, those two classes of chips now, sort of we'll call them the logic and inference chips, there's lots of flavors of them. There's lots of companies making them. But the growth in the uh, graphics, or some of them are called tensor processing units. Some of them are called neural processing units. These all kinds of different words. The basic point is that you're not doing linear logic. You're doing sort of image and pattern recognition. And so kind of along that lines of not appreciating what was going on, if we look at kind of the materials bucket, of things. You've got a really interesting quote in there that history and I'm I'm kind of bastardizing the quote, but it's that's, history is feel free to feel free. That's that's the whole point. Paraphrase, bastard. 
But, you know, basically the history of materials is us extracting from the earth. And it's really now morphed into, no, materials is us creating really cool stuff. You know, hey, we want to go do this. Can you give me a material that makes it? I don't know that I had a full appreciation for that happening. And I'm going to layer on top of this and then I'm going to let you run with it. But also you point out silicon may be unique in that it can help us change how we use other materials, which I've found pretty interesting. Never really thought through that, but. You know, if we're going to go create cool stuff, it certainly helps to have some horsepower to do it. Yeah, I mean, sort of the philosophical note that you're, that's what I find interesting and it's relevant that, that if, if a specific material can have qualities that are unique and amplifying everything else. Right? So you could, you could, to use a sort of a ham handed analogy, I didn't, I didn't put in my book. Uh, the, the stuff that we eat, the foods that energize uh, human beings, right? They're materials, they're biological materials. But w- we as a biological engine convert them, that those materials into other forms, muscles and brains that can do things that those materials can never do. Silicon is, if you like, to the inanimate world, <laughs> what our biological cells are to the animate world. I mean, that's sort of the kind of thing that's going on. It's really a big deal. I mean, it's a bigger deal than discovering copper, I think, because of the point you make. It's an amplifier. It's not just like copper is cool and I could do stuff with copper I couldn't do with iron. That's a big deal. But copper didn't amplify the the physical world the way silicon amplifies the physical world. But you're right. So the, the character of humanity is that nothing that exists exists without materials. As soon as you state it, it's like, well, to use a, a Gen Z expression. That's a no duh. But yeah. uh, all the atoms that are in you and me, all the atoms that exist in our civilization have always existed for as long as we know the universe has existed. There, there are no new atoms. We create, that's not true. When, when a supernova happens, it creates new atoms out of old atoms. But absent that, that detail in astrophysics, the atoms are infinitely recycled, except when we have nuclear fusion and fission. But the majority of the materials in the universe that we use on Earth, 99.99999%, we get to reuse. We're perfect recycling in that sense, if you think about it, mm. over millions and billions of years. But most of humanity has had to deal with building things to make life possible from natural materials, using the properties that nature gave those materials as they exist in nature. Wood, iron ore, right? Copper. I mean, we... You can use copper to conduct hair electricity because we discovered it can do that, but it's 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 that's all you can do with it, and that you have to use the property that nature gave it. So all of the things that were built up until roughly the late nineteenth century were built out of things we harvested from nature: leather and bone and granite and copper. You know, and then we then we started making metal alloys, but those were just clever addition of information using the t- properties of, you make bronze out of two different metals, right? You make steel out of d- coal and frankly, and uh, iron ore. Now we get to the early uh, 20th century, late 19th century, and chemistry is discovered. Pretty cool. Chemistry changed the world, whether people like it or not. Uh, if you look around you at any given moment, I would dare say, we'll measure it in pounds, not in dollars because the pounds are what matters to the physical, our physical environment. 
Look around you, uh, except for using some very ancient materials over and over again for all of history, wood. <laughs> most houses right. are built of wood and stone. So we've been using those for a few tens of thousands of years. But most of the new weight of all the new stuff in, in your and my life uh, is are plastics, polymers, and chemical materials. Uh, we, 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 we have revolutionized the world in terms of comforts and conveniences, all kinds of new features because of chemistry and pharmaceuticals. That's a big deal. That's the one that started in the 1920s, roughly, or just before, in terms of maturity, and really made a difference to the whole world, improving quality of life, improving healthcare, improving food production, improving the quality, safety of materials and things in our lives and all that kind of stuff. Uh, making clothing cheaper. Cotton trade was the most valuable trade in the world for a very, very long time because cotton was so expensive, valuable. We still use cotton, probably use more cotton in the world than we did 200 years ago. I think, I know we do. But we, most everything you're wearing and I'm wearing is, a few people have famously pointed out, are chemically derived from hydrocarbons instead of, instead of grown uh, on uh, sheep's back or in the plants. Uh, both are valuable. Now we have a new revolution where we have the, something called the materials genome. We now have, in large part because of the information revolution in science, we now know a lot more about how atoms and molecules combine, and we don't even know a lot more about it. We can, we can pretend to combine things by simulating combinations in supercomputers. We can synthesize virtual products. We can discover new, prop, new ways to make things in silico instead of in laboratories, which accelerates the discovery process. And then we can manufacture them in ways we could never have done before because we have machines that never existed before. So now we, now we, do, we make things, the two iconic examples I like are metamaterials and biocompatible or digestible computers. A metamaterial is a material that we engineer that can exhibit properties that nature doesn't have. For example, invisibility. We haven't made really good metamaterials that can make you, you, and, you and I invisible visually, but we can make things invisible in the radio wavelengths and the acoustic wavelengths. Probably we'll be able to make things invisible in the visible wavelengths with metamaterials. We can create what's called negative index of refraction. You know, you put a the, the experiment everybody does in high school, you know, you stick the, the, the knife in the glass of water and it right. looks like it's bent. That's called refraction and it always refracts the same way. I mean, you can do this experiment anytime. It's always going to be the same way. A metamaterial can reverse the refraction direction. Pretty cool. Pretty Impossible good. in nature. We now know that we can make, because there are patents for it and FDA approvals for it, uh, digestible uh, silicon, if you like, or uh, biodegradable, programmable, disappearing logic chips. We can make inanimate things that have logic in them that can disassemble and disappear and become just part of nature again on a sort of pre-programmed path so that we, if we wanted to sprinkle smart sensors into an environment, they'll do their job and then just decompose by programming within you know, six months, a year, you know, whatever the timeframe we, we, we so choose. Those are no longer crazy ideas. Those kinds of products exist. Those kinds of products never existed in the history of humanity. We're, some of them are not even imaginable in science fiction. And now we're beginning to manufacture things like that, beginning to. There are very, very few commercial products using these properties yet. That's what's beginning. That's sort of the thesis of my book is that the future is not what people invent today. 
It's what was it recently invented that's becoming commercially viable right now. Yeah, no, the the thing I found really wild, and I don't even know what this means, but you point out a stat about substances in the chemical abstract services. Who knows what that is? But in the year 2000, there were 20 million. And in 2020, there are 180 million. We're up ninefold. We have all of humanity to create 20 million and or find 20 million, as the case may be. And now there's nine times that. So that's and just if you, crazy. If, if you went back to 1920, the chemical age brought us tens of thousands of materials. In the, it's like the toolkit of things you can use to make something from. Imagine it as like a chemical toolkit. If I want to build a house or a computer or a car, what are the materials available to make a car in 1918? Well, it was, we know, the list is short. It's steel, yeah. leather, wood, copper, bronze. I mean, it's a, you could literally count a little more than two hands all the materials that were made up an entire automobile. There are thousands of classes of materials in an automobile today. And there are tens of thousands of classes of material in a smartphone. And if I take into account the fact that automobiles are full of smartphones, basically, there are tens of thousands of classes of specialty materials. The sort of the toolkit we can work from is that what that, 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 that uh, chemical abstract counts is when, when a new material is discovered or invented, of course, they're both the same thing. We don't discover it by digging a right. hole. We discover it by doing work, usually in a computer these days. Then you register it as a viable new material that has specific properties. And it's just like you go to a catalog. You know, I want to, if, if, if any of us were mechanics, you know, or your house, you want to buy a new part for something, you look up the part number. Well, now we have 180 million parts <laughs> to choose from, and it's still growing exponentially. How do you, what do you do with that toolkit? Well, you have a supercomputer and the supercomputer says, give me the, give me the toolkit and it can do this. And you say, what would, what is the, what is the thing that I want to do? What is the service I want to provide? It, it, I need to have a material to do that, whatever that is, whether it's flying a drone or curing a disease. Then you ask the computer to go hunt from that toolkit, combination of elements that will give me that particular component to make the thing possible. That's the kind of discovery that's now beginning. It's the kind of discovery, by the way, that brought us pretty quickly to these uh, vaccines for, for COVID and are bringing us to the new therapeutics for, for getting sick in any disease, including COVID. Yeah, no, uh, it's, I have my dad and my dad uh, describes himself as a retired country doctor, but I had dad on the podcast and we talked through COVID and that's one of the things he just went on and on about, you know, wherever you fall out on the vaccine debate, it's still amazing that they were able to get those things to market in nine months or 10 months. It is. I mean, I, I, I write about this as well because it's an important part. And it's not it's important to separate the politics uh, from these things. The politics are very important. We all know that. But the, the science and the facts of how we got to this vaccine are very interesting. Uh and they are very encouraging because the velocity tells you a lot about where the future is going to be in healthcare. One of the things that's been going on in healthcare is some scientists created a, a, a funny uh, uh, acronym called EROM's law. They reversed the, the letters from Moore's law, you know, the acceleration of computing density. You get more computers, more computing power per dollar every year. EROM's law is the inverse. You get you get more money but less healthcare each. That's quality right. of healthcare. 
these past few right. years. And we want to break EROM's law. Well, Moore's law is going to break EROM's law, and the vaccine development is a good example of sort of the iconic first step in that. Yeah. So the last bucket that you talk about or the last you know, convergent factor is machines. And that was pretty cool reading that stuff. Exoskeletons and drones and 3D printing. And uh, to the to this day, I still don't understand 3D printing, but it sounds really cool. So what's what's going on there that's going to change the change the uh, or cause our roaring 20s? Well, I'm so back uh, the three things you said and other and other things, other kinds. So if you think about the machine world, the machine world is sort of the uh, apotheosis of everything else, right? We 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 need machines to do stuff. We've been inventing machines for a very very long time. You know, the the cart with a wheel and an axle with a horse <laughs> and a yoke was a machine. It was one of the first machines. Why do we invent that machine? I mean, we know why. It's a lot easier to have the cattle and oxen pull the cart than have people drag around the rocks you just dug up or the food you harvested. Machines by, are. By the way, by the way, I hugely agree with Bill Gates's theory that he always gives the most difficult tasks to the laziest person because they figure out the way to do it with the least <laughs> amount of work. And I'm I'm sure the guy that came up with the wheel wanted to sit on his couch and what and drink a beer instead of going yeah. out and hauling all the rocks all day. And of course, we know there's been both chairs and beer around since before recorded history. So <laughs> that example right. is exactly right. But, it, it, it is, but the what, what, phrasing it that way is, is a, uh, uh, it's an amusing but correct way of pointing out that we want to chase efficiencies in society. We want to amplify human labor, human muscles, and the way you amplify them, the amplifiers are the machines. The quintessence of that amplifier is not riding a horse. A car is an amplifier, if you like, of our legs. You could say that because it sure does a lot better job than walking if you've got to go a thousand miles. And it does a lot better job than the horse, which is just harvesting some other else's muscles. Or if you're the queen of Sheba, you, you are harvesting the, the slaves carrying your, you know, your, your, uh, your, your chair in the, uh, you know, in the, in the shroud. So machines have been wired into our human civilization DNA forever. So as a taxonomy to look at what you do with information, what you do with materials, we build machines. Right? We build machines to build other machines. We build machines to make drugs. We build machines to give us the services. You don't have uh, FedEx without machines. You don't have a restaurant without machines because they harvest the food, they make the food cheap. We have machines that are, which are uh, Washing machines that make it a lot easier for a restaurant store. We, the list of machines is not as long as a list of materials, but it's a pretty big list, right? I mean, we we used to only have a few dozen kinds of machines in the whole planet. You could count. I mean, just think about the history. Count the kinds of machines people have, or that existed in industry that you never see. I mean, dozens. Uh, I used as my reference one of my prime references a two volume, two thousand page magisterial book on the history of machines. It's really great to read because the ideas of these machines have existed since, again, the time of the Greeks and the uh, Library of Alexandria. Uh, you know, hero built, uh, not hero, but the, uh, in the times of Alexandria, you had, we had robots. They, they built anim robots that moved. They had automatic doors, automatic lighting systems because 
not only one on the whole planet, by the way, because it was in Alexander and it was obviously clunky by our standards, but pretty amazing uh, if you think about it in terms of thousands of years ago. So when you look at the taxonomy machines, you have to think about the whole universe of the other stuff because that's how you get to make machines. And it's symbiotic. Machines make the materials, the materials, all the machines to be made. It's, it's, it's a, it's not, these are not linear, but they're, they're synergistic and symbiotic phenomena. But the kinds of machines we can now build are as different from the kinds of machines we started building in the 1920s as before that era. People knew there were cars because we had, could make a car because they had trains for 100 years by that point. So tra- it was obvious you could have a wheel-propelled, you know, energized, rolling machine. But going from train to car was a pretty big deal. The question you'd have is what comes after the car? Right? What's better than a car? Well, everybody knows the answer. They knew the answer in 1820 that they wanted a car. It's better to have a, a freewheeling vehicle than have one stuck on a track. People knew that for a century. It took a long time to make cars viable. So the air taxi, which has been you know pilloried, vilified, laughed about, talked about, since Henry Ford, by the way, Henry Ford, as I quote in my book, actually imagined flying car because it was obvious that there'd be an advantage to a car that could fly. Turns out that's really hard to do. I mean, the materials you need, <laughs> communications, control systems, the safety, the energetics, it's really hard. So despite the hype, uh, I w- I'm happy uh, to take go out on the limb and predict that we will see flying taxis uh, in the 20s. And uh, we know we will because they're already being built. The question will be, uh, what cost and where will they start first? But first will come drones for freight. This is a big deal. It, will, it won't mean that everybody will be doing just that. But in the 20s, it will start to make a difference. The kind of other kind of machines that are, are big deal, my favorite machines, are robots. I mean, we've imagined robots for a very, very long time. But by robot, I mean anthropomorphic machines, like walking dogs and people, and, you know, the stuff I robot kind of robots. Turns out that's really hard to do, too. You don't have to be uh, a, a forecaster to use the Google machine to see plenty of videos of pretty cool uh, anthropomorphic robots these days. The big question is not whether people would want one. I think a lot of businesses would use one. A lot of people would own one, frankly. I mean, it sounds sort of spooky. It sounds science fiction-y, but we, we all are getting older. We all have older parents. Uh, if you could imagine the anthropomorphic well, let's use the we use the uh, Spot Mini from Boston Dynamics as a sort of archetype because it's commercially available, as, as it were, that can follow your mom or dad around in the environment they live in. Wheeled robots can't do that. So robots to be useful to us in sort of daily life have to be able to operate in our environment. They have to be able to operate in our environment where we walk and go and, and not bump into us and not hurt us. And then they can report to you or me that, you know, mom's fallen down. Or dad is asked, they could carry the groceries, or open the door, all these things that for, let's just say, I don't know what the number is, 80% of the assisted living tasks could in principle be done by a cost-effective robot. The really difficult medical ones, obviously, somebody's incapacitated, are different. But an awful lot of what happens, a cost-effective robot could do and be very helpful. Uh, how much would that cost? And will it get cheaper? Well, it costs a lot right now. Uh, Will they get cheaper? Well, come on. I mean, this is kind of like saying it's 1890 some odd, 1900, and a, a car in today's dollars costs $100,000. How many people are going to buy one? 
not many. I mean, Elon Musk sells a lot of hundred thousand cars, but as a percentage, it's a few percent. But when the car became ten thousand in today's dollars, fifteen, a lot of people bought them. Robots are on the same trajectory. It's a slower trajectory than Moore's law, because we're in the world of atoms, not just bits. But that's coming. It's not just the automation that we've uh, looked at, which is the in automobiles where you have the same thing being manufactured by automated machines, quote, robots, that can do the same task over and over again. We're talking about multidimensional tasking, which is very difficult. It's computing is very difficult. So I offload the computing task out of the robot's brain into the network, into the cloud, into the local cloud. Don't make the, the robot have to carry around a supercomputer. That's silly. The robot can borrow a supercomputer when it has a task it has to figure out. Obviously, that task, you can't have the robot stop take five minutes to figure out how to open the door for grandma and then open the door, right? So that it has to do that analytic task quickly. If that requires offloading to a supercomputer in the cloud, that's a speed question on the networks, which we now know we have. That's what 5G is, by the way, even though it's been hyped. That's what 5G allows because I can connect in real time into the cloud, the supercomputing nearby. To do, anyway, I you, you can imagine I'm picking sort of simplistic mildly goofy scenarios, but to, to illustrate the fact that that's a class cool. of machine, that's what's coming. What other kinds of machines? Well, the machines that build machines. The kinds of things that when I worked in a factory, we, we, you, in any factory, you measure how, what kind of product you can make at what price and how fast by how capable the machines are to do the making. Those are the machines we don't see in day-to-day -day life, 3D printers. Or, but we, we have two classes of machines that are really different today. One are 3D printers. The other are I'll call nanofabricators, machines that can create parts at literally at the atomic level. The precision is no longer, do I measure it to the thousandth of an inch, which used to be a really big deal. You make engines by making sure all your tolerances are the same. The parts won't fit together if they aren't made to the same tolerance of a thousandth of an inch or so, far you know, thinner than a human hair. That was a big deal to do that. That's what happened in the 20th century. Now we're making machines, literally, that manufacture things at atomic layers. Uh, this, this, this is revolutionary. We'll, we can make all kinds of uh, novel uh, things that way. And 3D printing, to where you started, easy to explain what a 3D printer is. The printer that we all use for our computer. That was the nice. That was the nicest I've ever become to, been called a dummy before, by the way. But uh, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> where, where you started, Chuck, it's very simple to explain. No, you, know, you, no, you nailed no, it. 3D printers sound, you're right, sound weird. But, you know, the way a printer works is it layers ink on a piece of paper and it layers it in actually three dimensions, you know, left, right. But right. if there's no vertical dimension, that's the ink you're depositing on the paper. But you don't deposit very much. You, you, pause, you deposit... Uh, uh, infinitesimal layers, you know, measured in in thousands and millions of an inch. But you you build a vertical layer, so you've built a you built a three D thing that way, just scanning and depositing. Obviously, what a three D printer does is just keeps scanning higher up instead of just stopping at the linear thing. Just keep layering up, and you do that with other materials instead of ink. With metals, you do it with plastics. So then you go from a drawing to a product printed. People were very excited about it when they were first invented, and they, it's typical with new stuff. They got out of their skis predicting Star Trek-like manufacturing of every product in your house in 10 years. You'd have a 3D printer on your desk, and you don't buy a toothbrush. You just hit print. I need a toothbrush. 
Okay, you can print toothbrushes. They're actually pretty easy to print because they're plastic, they're simple, but it's actually easier to injection mold a toothbrush. So it's kind of the equivalent of, I don't know, it, the discovery of plastic. If you had said, oh, we're, gonna, we're never going to use stone and brick again because plastic is better. And for a lot of things, plastic is far better than brick or stone. Last I checked, most buildings are built out of brick and stone, not plastic. Right. Because right. it's better. Now, yeah. So, okay. So it's interesting. And, and I do think nature repeats itself. And so we've got three buckets. They're converging. Um, and I can definitely see where we're leading kind of to our, our roaring 20s. You know, ba NBA basketball teams now have to have big threes if they want to win the championship. Yeah. The Cowboys yeah. had the, uh, the big three of Emmett Smith, Michael Irvin, and Troy Aikman back in the day. The, the one thing that's interesting in the epilogue of the book, I believe, you actually overlaid government on mm -hmm. top of this and definitely made a case of the United States ain't dead yet. And so I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear you talk about that because I found that fascinating and actually reassuring, believe it or not. But I do have a big question to end on after, uh, after you lay that out. Sure. I mean, I, be, I also begin with, but I end most strongly with the obvious admonition that that uh, governs, governance and politics matter. This is not a book about politics and government, but politics and government matter. Uh, we can. It is possible to Sovietize an economy. It's possible you know, to destroy economies. Governments can do that. They've done it. And so the 1920s uh, to the year 2000, Americans did much better in every measure than the Russians did. I mean, it's not disputable. I mean, I love Russia and Russians people. I just, I mean, that they, the ones I known and that they're no different than Americans. They're Russians, right? They're just well, what happened? Well, they had access to all the same inventions that America had. What happened? Obviously, what happened there? They got the politics wrong. I mean, Putin might disagree with that, but most of us would agree they got their politics wrong. So, getting politics right matters. It matters. So, I, I pick in the hypertrophied extreme because. Governments do go to extremes. It can happen. So I'm not, and I'm not a Pollyanna that we can't have bad governance. Things can't go wrong. I don't believe when we're going through trials like we're going through now, I think we're going through a trial. And I don't mean this about our current president or the past president. I just mean it's a tumultuous time like it was in the 1920s. But we get through these things, I think. I'm very optimistic about America. I immigrated to America as a Canadian because it's a great country. I, I, think, we'll, I think we will resolve it. I think our system and our cultures makes these things get resolved. And I'm optimistic it will. Not without hard work, but everybody's part. So I, I didn't want to ignore that. But the bigger question uh, in terms of the state of America in the world is the claim that a China is, is the ascendant power. It's certainly ascended a lot. And that America is the receding power in the world stage. I think all of the factors where the epicenter of technologies lie, the epicenter of invention lies, the epicenter of research lies, and the economic uh, fluidity and adaptability reside, which is extremely important when the world's changing, where the political freedoms lie on net, and where demographic trends uh, are profoundly in our favor. It's very bullish for America. China's going to grow. Uh, this is not, uh, say China's not going to grow. Maybe the most important single fact, you know, as you know, I put in the epilogue, is if you look at the percentage of the population that is in the working age, uh, that is between 20 and 55, 
the United States will have a higher percentage of the working age a decade from now than, than will China. And their population is shrinking, already started shrinking, and ours is still growing. Whatever you think about immigration, I'm not going to go that rabbit hole, but America's always grown with immigration, legal and otherwise. Uh, we've, we've, we've gone through these kinds of fights about immigration before. And as immigrant, I'm very really aware of it. I was a documented alien, but it doesn't matter. I'm an immigrant, <laughs> right? So I, I, I make the case immigration's good. Uh, I think it should be managed, and most, pe- most people would agree with that. But I think it's a good thing. That plus our birth rates, which are down, are still higher than the other Western nations. We will be a, we are on track, America is on track to have a, a, a population greater than China's before the century's out. So this is pretty interesting. We're going to not only be sort of the same, call it the same size of population, because they're shrinking. That can't be reversed for centuries. And we're going to have a younger working force, even though we're aging. We're going to be younger because they did that goofy one-child policy, which they relaxed. That combination and their system just don't bode well for them being the ascendant power. They'll be powerful, but all all the macros are on our on the American side. And it, so I'm very bullish about the United States for the next uh, next century, and therefore for the you know, the rising Gen Zs. Hey, they, they live up the most exciting time in the country since well. I'll say it, the roaring 20s, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I'm glad to hear all this because uh, I'll go uh, put down the money line bet on the United States and not even ask for uh, ask for points to, uh, to take <laughs> the United States over China. The one thing I do worry about <laughs> and very fair comment back to say to me is, Chuck, take off your tinfoil hat or Chuck, get rid of your conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> but the the one big thing I had reading your book is we had the right system in the United States, the rugged individual free market type system. <clears throat> and I think every innovation along the way, if you looked at it in some way, shape or form, gave the individual more power vis-a-vis the government. I mean, you you get a car. All of a sudden, if I want to go from Houston to Michigan, I can do it. And the government can't tell me no. Sure, the police can pull me over. But you you definitely picked up more power, the individual versus the government. And what I worry about with the cloud is when we think about the cloud, I mean, it's really three companies, right? It's Google, it's Amazon, it's Microsoft. And here's the tinfoil hat part. They work with our government. There's no question they do. Yeah. Have we actually given our government finally the tools to read everything we text, read every bit of information we store, all of our communications? Have we given the government a tool whereby they're going to have power over us? And does that change the playing field, i.e. we don't have the roaring 20s because yeah. we've moved more towards the Chinese or the Russian system? vis-a-vis than what we lived in? No, it's a fair question. And, it, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a, a book unto itself, right? Because just as I said when we started, one, one could, and I may write a book about how, how we get innovation. Others have written books like that. Matt really just has a new book out on that. A lot of fun, good book. You know, how, how, do, you, how, do, you get, how do you get innovation? The other is, what do we do to, with governance with respect to the inevitable migration to big corporations with a lot of power, market power and government power, to the government's inevitable instinct to cooperate and vice versa with the big players. 
they will say for the public good. That's what they always say. And sometimes it's true. Often it's true. I'll give, I'll, let's just say I'll give the often it's okay. true. But it's not always true. So uh, let me put this into the, the two separate buckets. One is, is this time different in terms of the technology? And, it, and, and is this time different in terms of what, what the government can and can't do? So that's why I said politics matters. I mean, w- whatever the technology enables, uh, the capacity for governments to intrude in our life, to dictate things, as opposed to put guardrails around things. We, we all know why government exists. Government exists for a variety of reasons that most people can agree on. Then you get down to the tangential things. But almost everybody understands why some regulations matter. Safety regulations matter. You know, standards matter. Railroads would never work if everybody had a different gauge. Famous example back from the 19th century. So government has a role. And getting the politics right is always about where we lie in the spectrum from, we'll call it anarchy and no government, to statism and dictatorial government. And if people aren't, don't have to be fascists and socialists and statists to be find themselves drifting unintentionally towards status controls because they're they're often saying the things that they want to have happen for our good, and they may meet and then, and I'll, I'll again I'll just be you know uncynical. They, they probably believe in mean that there are those who don't, but let's just say they do, but they don't know the consequences. So it, that's why getting the politics rights matter, uh, and it doesn't really matter what the technology is. It doesn't matter whether it's a car, or an airplane, or a computer. Uh, the cloud or pharmaceutical, getting the government governance right matters in terms of when the companies become, Dow Chemical became big, GM became huge. Remember that famous, uh, infamous line, what's good for a GM is good for America, which by the way, is not what he said. If you use the magic Google machine, you'll find out he actually said the inverse. Literally said the inverse of testimony before Congress. It was, it was deliberately maliciously turned into, to, to coin a phrase, fake news by a newspaper at the day, which happened to be a paper still around. And uh, he just decided not to fight it anymore. Just said, you know what, whatever. But yeah. he, for his whole, whole life, Smith fought that. My point of that is that IBM had 70% market share in computers in 1978. Pretty powerful, right? Where are they today? So I, I don't uh, think for a moment that it's guaranteed that any of the the giants, the fangs exist 50 years from now. I would bet a bunch of them will, just like IBM actually exists more than a century later after it started making calculating machines. But Wang doesn't exist, DEC doesn't exist, Burroughs doesn't exist, Univac doesn't exist. I mean, we can go down a list of automobile companies where 300 automobile companies in 1910, there were 30 by 1930, and there's what, half a dozen now. So, and they're different ones. Tesla didn't exist. Before, so I think there's a lot of uh, churn in that inevitably, but to your point, it does matter to get this right. So what's different this time is not the idea; it's what it is. So what you know, this time is different. What's not different is we don't want uh, heavy-handed intrusion over things that we consider important, essential to our lives. Going from state to state without being told I have to stop at every state, have a border crossing, have somebody measure how far I drove, monitor my car. And there are people who still want to do that. Uh, control not just are you competent to drive a car, but whether or not there are other things about your life and background that allow you to drive a car. We didn't do any of those things with cars. 
We don't want that kind of thing to happen with the cloud and information. That's what's going on in Iran and China with regard to the cloud and North Korea. That's how they use it. Uh, we don't want we don't want to be the direction. Doesn't mean they don't, they can't have a cloud and use it for some purposes. I don't think that there's anything unique about the potential danger of we'll use the the uh, the invective of our overlords getting overreaching and getting their hands into our pockets or our lives. I don't think that's that's a, not a tinfoil hat danger. It's a real danger. And what's different about it is how they're going to do it this time. We have a different tool. Is it a more powerful tool? Yeah. But so is the countervailing tool. You know, we'll give Apple credit for this. The way they've designed their OS and BlackBerry, my old Canadian buddies, mm-hmm. most secure uh, form of email you can use at the moment, I believe, is still BlackBerry. It's possible to build systems to make them secure in which you, the consumer, me, the person, have control over it. There's a lot of market for that. I think businesses that create those things will get a lot of consumers who most of which want those kind of protections. That's not perfect. Government can still uh, classify certain kinds of devices as illegal. So you can't have that or we have to have a back door. Those are the political fights. But I, 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 and I know it sounds simplistic to say, I think, yes, it's different. It's a different technology toolkit this time. And yes, it's more powerful because it's a case I make which is why I would say it's even more important to get the politics right because the power, it's kind of like it matters more that we not have a war with nuclear bombs and not because they're actually more powerful. This is true. (laughs) Uh, Will we have wars again? Yeah. Fortunately, as I write in my book, people, technology can't fix stupid. I just can't. Right. (laughs) Just can't. But can I protect people better with the technologies we have, both in cyber sense and a physical sense? Yeah. Do do a, a, and, and the kind of um, instincts to control information that are, which is what, a lot of what we're talking about, because of the elections and because of debates are going on about everything during the lockdowns. That that's that's an important debate to be having. We've had this debate before, but we haven't had it for a long time. What are people allowed to say, and how are they allowed to say it? That's a really, really important debate. It's a debate we had at the dawn of, of newspapers and yellow journalism. A, we had that debate with radio and TV and when the book was invented. But we don't have those debates very often because there aren't very many, we use the expression, step changes in that field. We've just, we've just gone through a step change. We're having the debate again. I'm fighting on the side of freedom personally, and I'm betting that the freedom fighters will, will not We'll let you take your tinfoil hat off, but I think you should keep it on for a while just to be sure we, exactly. we, we win the fight. Well, Mark, um, this is your second time on the Chuck Yates Needs yeah. a Job podcast, and usually sequels <laughs> suck. But uh, I want to say this, is, uh, this has been really fascinating. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, everybody, the cloud revolution how the convergence of new technologies will unleash unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 20s. You should get the book. It really is a fascinating read. I enjoyed it, Mark. Thanks, Chuck. That's great to have you on. I'm I'm honored to get the second bite at the apple. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) You should aspire to more. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. Hey, thanks for doing that. Thank you. It's good. That was was cool. I appreciate it. Good question. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, yeah, no, I uh, I I really did read the book, and uh, I really was taking notes kind of along the way, and 
I tried not to ask the questions where every answer from you would have been, well, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> but, but I mean, no idea about a lot of that stuff going on. I mean, it yeah, makes a lot of sense when you read it. Yeah, that's, that's sort of why I did it, to synthesize. Because uh, the whole point of the, it was you, as you saw, there are a lot of citations. The point of the citations was to visually drive home the idea that this is not me just making stuff up. I'm just... I'm just harvesting the information that's right in front of our eyes and synthesizing it. And oh, by the way, I'm doing what the cloud's doing for us, and that's why it's going to be so cool. Yeah, it's good, kind of fun. Yeah. Let uh, you, let me know when you're ready. I mean, there's nothing that we did that I would, other than you, you know, you got the technical side that I'm worried about uh, putting out there. So when you're ready, let me know when it's going to go. Uh, is there a is there a better time for you? Um, as opposed to others, because I mean, I drop every Wednesday, so theoretically, I could do it next Wednesday if you wanted, or I could wait Wednesday's a week good. if that helped you. No, Wednesday's good. I think uh, the book's out Wednesday, so uh, it would be kind of fun if you're you basically you can release the podcast on the release day. It'd be that'd be great. Perfect. Yeah. No, I'll uh, I'll I'll uh, have Jacob. Uh, edit it. I know a couple of times my screen uh, froze, yeah, but I saw that that that, that kind of happens, and I don't think it because re it records on the the local computer. So uh, I've had that happen before, but it doesn't show up in the recordings. And Jacob's really good, so he'll run through it. And if there are any things like that, he'll edit them out. So yeah, I cool. I, I noticed that you 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 froze up, but I assume then you're in the the. What I was seeing on a, a video and some and it's a occasional audio freeze would not. Uh, would, it's just an artifact of the uh, transmission on my end. Yeah, no, I I, th I think that's what's kind of proved out using ZenCaster. So uh, December 9th, do I see you in Denver? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm doing that one because that doesn't that doesn't conflict. I'll definitely be there. That sounds great. Let's make yeah. uh, Ryan and Jeremy buy us strengths. Yeah, I, I, I think that's be a good plan. We'll, we'll we'll find a good Denver bar, uh, uh, maybe do some Denver uh, distilled uh, quality liquors, and away we go. Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks again, Mark. Have a uh, Thanks, have a Mark. good weekend, and I'll be in touch.